But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do you, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and uh, drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 to 34. Thanks, Manny. So the past little while, we've been going through a series here on Sunday mornings about the church. We've been saying, this is a church. And what does that mean? And we've been looking at the basics and, and the foundational things of what it means for us to be a church or for a church in general to be a church. So we've seen so far that the church is built on the foundation of God's word, that the church is, is God's idea, that it's, it's God's family, and therefore it needs to be built on his word, not on human wisdom, even when he says things that don't necessarily make sense to us. Uh, we've seen that the church is the people, not a building or an event. We've talked about membership and how God designed us as a church so that we need one another, that, that there's no such thing as solo Christianity, and that God saves us not just so that we can follow him as individuals, but so that he can shape us into a community of faith who need one another and depend on one another. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at baptism, which is the public event 
that tells the world that we are part of God's family. And like all families, the family of God is called to share a family meal. And that's what we're looking at today. The Lord's Supper is the meal that God has called the church to eat together to celebrate the fact that we are part of his family. And therefore, since we're all part of his family, we're also part of one another's family. And depending on the church background that you come from, you, you may have heard it referred to as the Lord's Supper. You may hear it referred to as communion. You may hear it referred to as the Eucharist. These all are referring to the same thing. They're just drawing out different dimensions of what it is. So the Lord's Supper points to the fact that this is something that was given to us and instituted by Jesus. Communion points to the fact that it's something we do together that, that brings us together and shows our unity. Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharisto, which means to give thanks. It's actually in this passage in verse 24, when it says Jesus gave thanks. Um, and so the Eucharist refers to the, the fact that we're giving thanks as we eat the Lord's Supper together. And today I'll just use these terms interchangeably. So if you hear me jumping back and forth between them, all referring to the same thing. Um, but yeah, today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34 to learn about the Lord's Supper and, and why it's important for us as a church. And what we're going to see is that the Lord's Supper is a meal where we proclaim our unity as God's people. And we'll look at the purpose, a warning, a practical step, and the goal. All right, but before we jump in and look at the passage, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to be able to gather together today. Thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that you've given us your word so we can know you. We pray that you would speak to us through this time, that you'd be honored through our listening and our obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, we're going to look at the, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Today's passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul sent to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. And basically what happened, this, this church was a relatively young church. It had been planted by Paul on one of his missionary journeys. And they had lots of questions for Paul about how to do church. So they wrote him a letter and they sent him the letter so that he could answer all their questions. And apparently when the letter was delivered, whoever was delivering the letter added some other updates about the church as well. So, so Paul in this letter in 1 Corinthians, he's responding to their letter and to what was told him when the letter was delivered. And in the, in the very last verse of today's passage, verse 34, he mentions to them that he is planning to come visit them soon. And so there are certain things that were mentioned in the letter or in the personal update that he's going to share with them then. But there are certain things that are just so urgent that they can't wait. They need to know these things ASAP so they can start dealing with them. And this letter, 1 Corinthians, deals with the urgent things that can't wait until Paul arrives to be dealt with. And in this letter, we see instructions on how to take communion which means that for Paul, communion and taking it properly was super important. It was of high enough importance that it couldn't wait till he got there for them to get these instructions. Actually, if you, if you look at verse 30, Paul says it's so important that it's a matter of life and death. 
So we have some pretty high stakes for getting this right, right? And, and we can see at the start of today's passage that Paul is quite upset with them about the way that they've been celebrating the Lord's Supper. He says, I do not commend you. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. How would you like the Apostle Paul to say that to you? Like you'd actually be better off staying home and not coming to church on Sunday morning because you're making such a mess of things by how you celebrate Jesus together on Sunday mornings. That's not a resounding celebration. And it's important for us to ask why not? And it has to do with how they took the Lord's Supper. And understand, the Lord's Supper for them looked quite different than it does for us. For us, we usually take communion at the end of service. We give everyone a little cup of grape juice and a little torn up piece of bread. We eat and drink them together. I mean, to refer to that as a meal is playing pretty loose and free with the definition of the word meal, right? It's, It's... actually probably even too small to qualify as a snack a lot of the time. Uh, But for them, when they ate the Lord's Supper, it was a meal. If you're trying to picture what this would look like, don't imagine when we take communion, imagine when we have a church potluck. There would be lots of food and and lots of time to eat it together. And, And within that meal, they would have specific times, I think, where they would take the bread and take the wine to celebrate Jesus. But that was as part of a larger meal. And there was so much food there and so much drink there that some people in the church got drunk off of it. And then other people actually didn't even get enough food to eat. So they were leaving hungry. So you have this problem where there's lots and lots of food, enough for people to get drunk off the wine that's there. But then it's not being distributed evenly because while some people are getting drunk, others are leaving hungry. Now you might be wondering, how does that happen? Well, in that society, there was a a big divide, wealth gap between the rich and the poor. If you were rich, you likely owned the equivalent of your own small business. You were the boss. If you wanted to leave work early to go to the church celebration, no problem. That's your right as the boss. But the poor people often lived on a subsistence level income. You needed every penny of your salary to be able to feed your family and clothe your family. And so you couldn't leave work early. You couldn't threaten your job by being less committed to it than the other people around you. Some of the poorer people were slaves. They didn't have control over their own schedules because they belonged to someone else and they could not leave until the other person said, okay, now you're free to go. And so what happens in this scenario is the rich people could arrive hours before the poor people just by nature of their freedom of their schedule. And they'd arrive and when they arrived, they'd start eating and eating and eating and eating. And by the time the poor people arrived, there's no food left and the rich people in the church are all drunk. And Paul says, this is totally inappropriate. He actually, in verse 22, goes on this little rant and he accuses them of despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. He gets pretty harsh in his wording here. And why is this such a big deal? Well, because the Lord's Supper or communion is a picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Jesus freely laid down his life for us, to rescue us and save us. And he calls us to take communion as a way of celebrating his death. We see in verses 24 and 25 of today's passage, 
the bread and wine, they're not just random elements or items of food. They're, they're chosen specifically by Jesus as a way of depicting his body and blood that were broken and poured out for us on the cross. This meal is, is given to us as a picture of what Jesus did for us. And you know, something about humanity, we forget things really easily. If you read through the Bible, this command to remember, 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 remember shows up over and over and over. And why do we need constant commands to remember the various things that God has done for us? Because we're terrible at remembering. So he needs to tell us over and over, remember this. And God knows, he understands our weakness. He's given us this meal as a gift, as a tool to help us remember. And it's this tool that engages different senses to to help make our memory of it even stronger. It helps us remember the most important thing that we need to know as a church, the death of Jesus for our sins. And these rich people, by eating all the food and drinking all the wine before the poor people could even arrive, they were robbing the poor people in the church of the opportunity to remember the death of Jesus through their meal. And Paul says, that's not okay. The Lord's Supper is a powerful tool given to us to help us remember Jesus' death. But Paul also says there's a danger. There's a danger we can take it wrong. And that's why he gives us a warning. So in verse 27 and following, Paul tells the church, he warns them about the possibility of guilt and judgment coming through taking the Lord's Supper improperly which is scary because during non-COVID times, we take communion regularly as a church. We haven't done it recently due to health concerns. We're working on trying to find uh, some COVID-friendly communion elements where everything is sealed up. We just had some trouble getting them, Uh, but we're hoping to have those moving forward so that we can continue to take communion together because it's important. It's an important thing that God has given us to remember who he is and what he's done for us. Uh, But if there are ways to take communion that could be physically or spiritually harmful for us, it's important for us to be aware of those dangers, right? (laughs) Because if it's something we're doing regularly, it's important for us to do it right. And the fact that communion can be a source of harm means that taking communion isn't just a magic formula that helps us grow spiritually. There's some people who think of it that way. They feel like as long as I'm eating the bread and drinking the wine or juice, I'm good. It gives me like a check in a box for, for spiritual activities. And it means that God must be happy with me. And Paul says, no, that's not automatically true. He says, communion is more like medicine. You know, in Hong Kong, if you go to the doctor and you're sick and they give you medicine, what does it say on the outside of the medicine in big red letters? Poison. Now, obviously your body needs that medicine to get better, but it's not this automatic cure-all. There's no such thing as a medicine that just cures everything, right? Medicines work because they are powerful, but that power has to be used the right way. If you use that power the wrong way, you're going to poison yourself and harm yourself. And so you need to be careful to take the medicine properly. And Paul says the Lord's Supper is the same thing. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful, It has a great power to do amazing spiritual work in our lives and in our community. But that power, if used improperly, is poison. 
It can kill us. He, he literally says in this passage, it can kill us if we do it wrong. So how do we make sure we're taking it properly? Well, in verse 28, he tells us to examine ourselves. He says to check ourselves, make sure that when we take this meal, we're taking it properly. And how do we examine ourselves? Well, in verse 29, he tells us we have to discern the body. What does it mean to discern the body? There's actually two levels of meaning for discerning the body. First, it means recognizing that the bread and wine point to Christ. Recognize this is not just a snack that we eat to get full, but this is something we do specifically to to show a picture of Christ's sacrifice for us, which on a very basic level means that in order to take communion properly, you need to be a Christian. See, the gospel, the good news of Christianity, it teaches us we're all born as rebels against God. We're all worthy of God's judgment and wrath. And on the cross, Jesus God in human flesh died in our place to bear the punishment that we deserve. To be a Christian means trusting in the death of Jesus for forgiveness for your rebellion against God. It means trusting in the death of Jesus to give you a restored relationship with God. And if you're not a Christian, by definition, that means that you haven't yet trusted in the death of Jesus for that forgiveness and for that new relationship with God. It means by definition that you haven't yet understood the significance of the body and blood of Jesus. And so until you become a Christian, you can't properly discern the body the way that Paul calls us to, and you shouldn't be taking communion. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the invitation to become a Christian, it's open to you today, right now. If you're not a Christian yet, I encourage you, trust in Jesus today, right now. But until you do that, taking communion is dangerous for you and not helpful. So that's the first meaning of discerning the body, is is recognizing that it points to the physical body of Jesus that was killed for our sins. But second, body here also refers to the church. A A few weeks ago in our sermon, we were talking about how the church is the body of Christ. Now that sermon, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 12 right here, Today, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 11 right here. It's just a few verses away. Paul is talking about how the body of Christ is clearly the church. And he's right here in the same context, making the same reference. When he says body, he's not just talking about the physical body of Jesus that died on the cross. He's talking about the spiritual body of Jesus, the church. And he's saying right here, if you don't recognize Christ in his body, the church, it's not right for you to take communion. So here's what I want you to do. Look around the room. Look at the different people in here. You see different ages, different nationalities, different education levels, different income levels. I want to ask you, do you recognize these people as your family? Do you recognize that we are a body, that we need one another? because we're part of the same body. And if not, then you're failing to discern the body of Christ. 
So I want to give a couple more examples of what it could look like for us to, to fail to discern the body. Because I think in teachings on communion, recognizing that the stuff points to Christ, I think is pretty, pretty frequently taught on. But recognizing how to discern Christ in the body of the church, I think often gets overlooked. So I want to dig into this a little more and just think through some practical examples of what this could look like. So for the Corinthians, obviously, it meant all the rich people eating the food before the poor people had a chance to arrive. Their actions failed to demonstrate that the poor people were an important part of the church body. For us, probably not as big of an issue when we take communion. I mean, we take it at the end of service so everyone has time to arrive, even if you're like an hour late for church. Um, but we have other issues in our community that can keep us from discerning the body of Christ in the church. So for example, if you're having a fight with someone else in the church and you're just so upset with them that you refuse to speak with them because of how angry you are with them, you're failing to discern the body of Christ. And therefore you shouldn't take communion until you deal with that. By refusing to talk to this person, you're refusing to recognize that you're both part of the body and you both need one another. Part of being the body is recognizing we need the rest of the body. And if we're treating some part of the body in a way that says, I don't need you, we're failing to discern the body. I don't think we have anyone like this here, but just in case, if you're like, man, I get into fights all the time, I guess I'm never taking communion again. Recognize that's not Paul's goal here. Look at the second half of verse 28, where he tells us to examine ourselves. He says, examine yourself and then eat the bread and drink the cup. Paul's goal is not to ban us from taking communion. Paul's goal is to get us to deal with these conflicts in a healthy way. He says, examine yourself and then eat. He doesn't say examine yourself and then forget about it. No, he, he expects that when we examine ourselves, that we're going to deal with the issues we find so that we can then take communion in a healthy and beneficial way. He's not of calling us to avoid communion because of our conflicts, but to deal with the conflicts because we're a body and we need one another and we're family. There are other implications as well for what it means to discern the body. You know, as a Christian, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how baptism is the way that we publicly identify the fact that we belong in this family, that we are part of this body. If you're a Christian and you have trusted in Jesus, but for whatever reason, you're not willing to publicly identify with the body of Christ through baptism, you should not be taking communion because you're failing to truly understand what the body is and how deep your need is for the body by refusing to identify yourself with that body through baptism. Also, we talked a couple weeks ago about how the local church is the manifestation of the body of Christ in a specific time and place, and how membership is the way that we show our commitment to loving and serving that body. Now, I realize historically, membership has not been strongly emphasized in the bridge for a while. And so there could be a number of valid reasons that someone could have been at the bridge for a while and could not be a member still. Um, so I'm not making a blanket statement that you need to be a member or else, but if you're not a member and you're not willing to take steps towards becoming a member moving forward, I want to challenge you a bit and ask, why is that? What is it that, that keeps you from affirming your membership in the body 
through joining as a member if this is your home church. I realize there's no specific verse in the Bible that says you must be a member of a local church, but there are several, as we saw a couple weeks ago, several great biblical reasons for joining the church as a member. It's a godly and biblical practice. And there are many people in our world today who avoid membership because they don't truly believe they need the body. And if that's you, if you're refusing to become a member because you don't believe you need the rest of the church to live a healthy Christian life, then I really wanna challenge you to examine yourself and see whether you're properly discerning the presence of Christ in his body in the church, or whether you need to change your perspective on the church to have one that allows you to see Christ more properly in his body. And if you're not a member yet, but you're interested in becoming a member, we're gonna have a membership class soon. Come talk to me after service. I'd love to get you signed up for that. Um, and I realize it could feel like I'm sort of being nitpicky right now, or like I'm making a big deal about things like membership that, that maybe don't justify having this much emphasis. But Paul says the consequences of taking communion improperly are severe. So severe that certain people in Corinth died from taking it improperly. Like look at verse 30. Anyone, or sorry, start in 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Like let that sink in for a second. Paul says this is literally a matter of life and death, whether or not we properly discern the body of Christ in the church. So examining ourselves to make sure our hearts are in the right place before we take communion is essential. And basically, if you look at verses 31 through 32, he says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined. So we may not be condemned along with the world. His, his instructions for examining ourselves here, they follow a progression. Now, some of these words are like judged and judged in verse 31. They're translated the same in English, but in the original Greek, there's slight differences between them. And basically the verbs intensify as you move forward in the verses. So when Paul says in verse 31, judge ourselves, the word here basically means like examine ourselves or discern our hearts. In the second half of the verse where he says we would not be judged, that's more in the sense of facing consequences from God because we failed to discern our hearts properly. And then it continues in verse 32, the, the ultimate danger is being condemned along with the world, which points to an eternity separated from God. So there's this progression. Paul is saying, if there are issues in our hearts that keep us from taking communion properly, God will deal with them. He gives us the opportunity first to examine our hearts, see what's going on there and fix it. And if we refuse, then he sends us discipline, discipline, which is uncomfortable, which we don't want, but ultimately is aimed at restoration and healing. But if we still say, no, I will not listen to you. I will not change. I will not turn to the way that you want me to go. Then there's the threat of condemnation and separation from him forever. This is serious business. It's not something to mess around with. And so how do we know, or how do we move in the direction of taking communion properly if we're not there already? Well, let's look at a practical step. 
In verse 33, we see that Paul has a really practical step to help the Corinthians with taking communion properly. He tells them, wait until everyone is there to start eating. If the problem is that half the group is getting drunk and half the group is going home hungry, just wait until everyone's there and then spread out the food evenly and you're good. I love how simple and practical that is, right? Isn't it great when the Bible has such practical advice for us? The problem is for us, we have different problems with taking communion properly sometimes, right? Like we don't eat a full meal together for communion. With the size of bread and juice servings that we hand out, I guarantee everyone leaves here hungry after communion. No one is getting drunk, especially because we use non-alcoholic grape juice, right? But second, yeah, like I mentioned, we, we take communion at the end of service. Everyone has time to arrive. We're, we're doing pretty good on Paul's specific instructions right here. But the fact that we are doing okay with this specific instruction doesn't mean that we're doing everything perfectly. Like we just talked about a few different ways we can fail to discern the body of Christ properly. So in light of those ways, what are practical steps that we can take in order for our time taking the Lord's Supper to be beneficial and not harmful for us? I have a couple suggestions. Here's my first one. Typically, as we hand out the elements for communion, we have a time where someone's up front playing some instrumental music just in the background. And we have a few minutes between receiving the elements and actually taking communion together. And I invite you, use that time to reflect. Think to yourself, is there anyone in the church that I have unresolved conflict with? That would include your spouse if your spouse is part of the church. They're probably the one you're most likely to have unresolved conflict with. But is there anyone in the church as a whole that I have unresolved conflict with? And if so, deal with it. Like right then and there. If they're part of the church, hopefully they're in the room at that time, just walk across the room and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry for my part in this conflict. Can we, can we talk about this? Can you forgive me? And I realize that probably sounds terrifying, especially many of us coming from honor-shame cultures that put so much value on face. And what will people think if they see me walking across the room to talk to someone as we get ready to take communion, right? I realize that's, that's a genuine fear. But the awesome thing about the church is that the one thing that unites us all is a common confession that we're all too broken to fix or save ourselves. If there's anywhere on earth where it's safe to do this, church should be that place. I realize it doesn't always work out that way properly, perfectly, but that should ideally be the case. It means no one who believes the gospel has any grounds for looking down on you, for actually admitting in a real life relationship that we need Jesus. But even if people around you do judge you for it and do think less of you for it, Paul says, Taking communion incorrectly can be a matter of life and death and can put us under God's judgment. So even if people in the church do look down on you or judge you for going to deal with that conflict, would you rather have them judging you for having that conversation or would you rather have God judge you for not having it? So reflect, do I have any unresolved conflict with other people in the church? Another practical step that we can take during this, this preparation time is just look around you. Look at the diverse group of people around you and remind yourself, Jesus 
died to make us a family. Have you ever stopped and just thought about how incredible and amazing that is? Like we were just singing, people from every people and tribe and nation and tongue, Jesus has made us a family. Because of our common faith in Jesus, we need one another. So as you look around the room and and remind yourself that we are a family, ask yourself, is there anyone here that I struggle to really believe is my family? Is there anyone here that I struggle to believe I need for my spiritual health and growth? And as God brings people to mind, remind yourself, they are my family in Christ. I do need them for my spiritual health and growth. And I'll confess, you know, sometimes I look around the room and sometimes I feel like it's easy for me to look at the kids or the teenagers and say to myself, like, I can see how I need all different types of adults for my spiritual health and growth, but do I really need them? And if you're a teenager or a kid here, I apologize for that because that's a wrong attitude to have. You know, as I look back over my life, I can see I've learned so much about God's love and patience and joy and so much more from kids and teenagers that I could never have learned without having them involved in my life. And I want to publicly affirm right now that that you, kids and teenagers, you're an important, essential part of our church family. We need you. But I also want to challenge you if you're a kid or a teenager. If you look around the room, is there anyone you don't feel is necessary for your spiritual growth? If so, I encourage you to talk to God about that and apologize for your wrong attitude. Because if we're Christians, we're all family. We're all part of the body of Christ. We all need one another, even if someone in that family it seems sometimes boring or difficult or old. So those are a couple practical steps that we can take to help examine ourselves and see whether our hearts are prepared to take the Lord's Supper, whether we're discerning the body of Christ so that we can take it in a way that truly honors him. And maybe you have other ideas of what this could look like to examine ourselves, to discern the body. If so, feel free to share it with me and the rest of the church family because this is somewhere we could definitely benefit from sharing with one another and learning from one another and growing together. And I realize up until this point, I've spent a lot of time in this sermon just talking about how to do communion wrong, right? How to mess it up, how to have the wrong heart attitude. But Paul tells us here, communion is powerful. The goal is not to get it wrong. The goal is to get it right. And when we do get it right, there's this power in it. And so in closing, I want to look at the opposite end of the discussion. What is the goal in all of this? When we do take the Lord's Supper right, what are the results? And Paul tells us in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we do this right, we proclaim the Lord's death. Now, who do we proclaim it to? And I think if we step back and examine it, we can see several different individuals or groups of people that we proclaim the Lord's death to. And four of the primary ones actually line up very nicely with our church's core values. So let's look at how we proclaim the Lord's death and who we proclaim the Lord's death to as we take the Lord's Supper. So our first core value is Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim to God our trust in him, our thanks for his sacrifice, 
Communion or the Eucharist is an act of worship and thanks that celebrates Christ's lordship and authority over us. So we proclaim to God that we love him, that we trust him, and we are committed to following him. Second, our core value is community. You know, I have a friend, he always likes to remind people that if you try to take communion by yourself, it's called a snack because the community around us is essential for making communion, communion. By taking the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim to one another that we support one another in our faith, that we're here for one another. We encourage one another to persevere in our faith because we're saying, I'm right here beside you and I also believe that this is true. You know, sometimes the Christian life, it's hard. And having encouragement from other Christians who say, I know it's hard, but I'm right here with you. I also believe that this is true. And I'm walking alongside you as we try to live out what it means to follow Jesus. That can do great and incredible things in encouraging our faith. So we take communion together to proclaim to our community around us that the Lord's death is true and powerful for transforming us. Our third core value is calling. Calling is about our growth in personal discipleship and obedience to Jesus in all of our lives. Does anyone else ever feel like sometimes in the Christian life, I'm just going through the motions. You don't need to put your hands up. I do sometimes. Sometimes it feels like I'm going through the motions, but I don't really feel like anything's happening as I do that. And we're doing all these things. It just feels like, do I really believe this or am I just doing them because that's what I've been taught to do? But by taking communion, we remind ourselves, I believe that this is true. I believe that Jesus' body was truly broken for me. I believe that Jesus' blood was truly poured out for me. We're doing a physical action that tells not only God and not only the people around us, but ourselves, I believe that this is true. And as we do that, we receive affirmation from the church community around us saying that they believe our faith is genuine and affirming us in that declaration of faith. So communion, it strengthens our own faith by proclaiming the Lord's death to ourselves. And then our fourth core value is commission, which is about sharing the good news of Jesus with the world around us. And by taking communion together and affirming publicly that we are a family formed through the blood of Jesus, we proclaim the Lord's death to the world around us because we're telling them we are a new community formed through the blood of Jesus and his death on our behalf. And this community breaks down all the social barriers that the world puts up. And by taking communion together, we're telling the world around us, the blood of Jesus is the only thing powerful enough to bridge those gaps. And so by taking communion together and affirming our love for one another through communion, we tell the world around us of the power and truth of Jesus' death. Church, communion, it's a powerful gift given to us by God in order to proclaim Jesus' death and to proclaim our unity as God's people. It's a meal instituted by Jesus that has great power for helping our spiritual growth but the power also comes with a danger, which is why we need to examine ourselves to make sure we're taking it properly. But when we do take it properly, it's an act of worship that proclaims Jesus' death to God, to ourselves, to our community, and to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
the death of Jesus on our behalf. God, that is our only hope. We thank you that through that you've formed us into a family and a body. We pray that you forgive us for the times that we don't act like a family or like a body. Pray that you forgive us for the times that we have attitudes to say to one another in the church, I don't really need you. God, teach us to discern your body in the church, to see that we are a family, to see that we need one another. God, we love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.